right? The world as Babylon is the dream of empire, the dream of conquering, the dream of owning, of controlling, of subduing, uh, of finally making the earth be and do what we want it to be and do instead of spending our time caring for it and it's in its wildness wildness is a great word insofar as wildness names the the earth's uh are the impossibility of owning the earth right and uh, that we can look after and care for it but it's always going to be wild it's never going to be it's never going to be tamed it's never going to be domesticated Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. Well, this is great. Um, We're excited for this this one um kind of usually what we do is we start off with an introduction by the guest so um adam if you wouldn't mind um introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of your background um and and maybe telling us a little bit about yourself and and um your history your involvement and your interest with um you know environmental topics i guess I am Adam S. Miller, and I'm a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. I did my bachelor's degree in comparative literature at BYU, my master's and PhD in philosophy at Villanova, and I specialize in philosophy of religion and contemporary European philosophy. Uh, I also write uh, sometimes in a devotional vein for Latter-day Saints. If your listeners know me, then it's probably from one of the two books I've published with Deseret Book, either Letters to a Young Mormon or An Early Resurrection, or maybe even my recently published uh, Brief Theological Introduction to Mormon in the Book of Mormon. I grew up in Pennsylvania, out in uh, the rural Appalachian Hills uh, with a very small church Mormon experience. When I was a teenager, we lived in a branch that met in a repurposed house that the church owned. The downstairs wall between the living room and dining room was knocked out, and we used that as the uh, sacrament meeting room. And then the uh, bedrooms upstairs were classrooms, and priesthood, of course, met in the kitchen. And so... I feel like I've always had a kind of uh, do-it-yourself experience of Mormonism, where it felt like if it was gonna if it was gonna get done, if, if the restoration was gonna unfold, then it was gonna require my active participation, <laughs> both in really practical ways and uh, maybe more theoretical ways now these days as a philosopher. I would say that. 
my interest in environmental issues and ecological issues is something that I've come to kind of sideways over the years, right? As I've, as I've gone deeper and deeper into trying to understand myself and my own religion more clearly, uh, as I've gone deeper and deeper inside myself, we might say, I've discovered more and more that the inside is entirely populated only with the outside. Uh, I've discovered a kind of deep, <laughs> deep interdependence uh, of all those elements that has led me to be more and more concerned with, uh, with environmental and ecological issues. Uh, though in terms of my formal work, those have, those have always just been uh, kind of obliquely uh, touched on rather than, rather than ever being the central question for me. Adam, I've uh, I've read a number of your books. I'm I've read Letters to Young Mormon. I don't know how many times, and an Early Resurrection, uh, as well as you have a book of essays, Future 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 Mormons. Uh, and in preparation for this, mm. I also read your brief theological introduction to Mormon. Um, and I gotta say, I'm I'm excited to have you on the show because I think you are one of Mormon's Mormonism's genuine mystics. Uh, that I think we're we're starting mm. to have some some crop up, uh, and so I'm I definitely I as I'm familiar with a lot of kind of Eastern spirituality and Hinduism and Buddhism, and I definitely can pick up kind of that Eastern flavor in, in your writings. Um, so I, you know, in this interview, I'm obviously going to be referencing uh, some quotes from these three different uh, books of yours that, that we've, that we've, we've mentioned. Um, but to, to get in um, to kind of, uh, foreground the episode um, you, you've got this idea, this, this like living sabbatically, and I think you, it also kind of ties into this idea of sacrificing all things in this in your your newest book, um, and it also kind of ties into in early resurrection of what does it mean to live as though you're already resurrected, as though Jesus had already come. Um, and so I, I'm I'm captured by this idea um, of living sabbatically, and how living sabbatically can kind of be a resistance um, or a wild form of resistance to the world that we live in. Um, and so I think to, you know, in terms of like setup and context, um, I, I think we should probably talk about the distinction between quote, the world and the earth. Um, and so, because I think sometimes we, we just flippantly will say, you know, oh, something, something, the world. And we all just assume that we know what we're talking about. And sometimes I feel like the, the earth gets lumped in with that when I don't think that that's what the scriptures are referencing at all. And I think that the earth is very distinct from quote the world. And so can I, first question is what is the nature of this world in comparison to the earth? That's it. That's all we have to that's, cover. That's in our the only context. We have to cover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an interesting question. I think I would say that the world is something like the idea that the that the earth could be owned or controlled right the world is something like the fantasy that we could be something other than stewards borrowing and caretaking for a time the earth right is that kind of dream that we fall into of of control and mastery and ownership and possession. Uh, the dream that leads us down that path where we make all kinds of terrible decisions in the name of ourselves and for the sake of ourselves. Uh, and that scripture typically describes just with that single monosyllabic word, sin. 
Yeah, Catherine Knight Sontag has has referenced, uh, you know, Babylon that the world is is Babylon to some degree, mm-hmm. and I think we, you know we can see this around us in like the economies of attention that like the world trades in attention these days, right? And it's wherever you can have your attention um, that you know whether it's the apps or whether it's advertising or media, like everything is vying for our eyes and for our our minds and our our time. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is part of what the world is. And I think the earth as a response to that is, is a radical departure from that. Um, I know Richard Rohr talks about powers and principalities or, or, you know, the powers and principalities are what the world is and powers and principalities are like, would be corporations, governments, or things that are too big to fail. Right. And that the earth is very much not those things. Yeah, I would say the world as the apparatus for commodifying attention, the world as an apparatus, a kind of grand social apparatus for extending the dream of empire, right? The world as Babylon is the dream of empire, the dream of conquering, the dream of owning, of controlling, of subduing. Uh, of finally making the earth be and do what we want it to be and do instead of spending our time caring for it and it's in its wildness wildness is a great word insofar as wildness names the the earth's uh are the impossibility of owning the earth right uh, that we can look after and care for it but it's always going to be wild it's never going to be it's never going to be tamed it's never going to be domesticated abby please well, I was just thinking too, in just in thinking of like Heidegger um, and and kind of the idea of world as he established it, that it's not necessarily something natural, but can also be something kind of created from nothing. Um, and that I think the world as we know it, or maybe some of the more contemporary understandings of the world is very separate from earth as world. Um, and like you said, Adam, just kind of that, that idea of kind of the commoditized or the commodification of the world. Um, like that's not something that I want to associate with the earth, I guess. Um, and so to me, that should be completely distinguished (laughs) as something separate from the earth, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that this is a casual campfire where we can talk about Heidegger. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're, not only world is an important word for Heidegger, but earth is an important word for Heidegger as well, where, where earth is a name for that aspect of reality that resists us, right? That remains in the dark, that remains hidden, that can't be controlled or mastered or known or or subdued by technology, right? It's a name for that constant pushback from, uh, from reality, Earth. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happens when you invite a graduate student to the conversations. <laughs> I, used to, I used to know more about Heidegger, but you know, then I just graduated and I dumped everything out of my head. Um, I, uh, I'm glad that we, you know, we're talking about how the, the earth ultimately it's wild. The, the wildness of the earth ultimately it lies in its uncontrollability. Right. And, uh, I, I love that because this season so far, the conversations Abby and I have had revolve around this idea of wildness equals freedom, wildness equals spiritual freedom and not kind of that glib freedom that we talk about, you know, as, as 
Americans, but kind of that, that true internal, I am an agent and I cooperate in this, in this sphere with, with God and with other people who are also wild agents unto themselves. Um, and I, I see God's work on earth as being to try and to make us free, to make us more wild and more, more resistant to the, to the ways of the world. And so I see the work of the world is trying to chain us down and to take away our freedoms and to try and wrap us up in, in, in things that like steal away our attention. Um, so how does the world chain us down and take away our spiritual and live freedom? I mean, I think I would want to see the wildness of the world as not perhaps an inherently good thing. The wildness of the earth is not perhaps an inherently good thing, or even the the structure of the of the world as opposed to the earth as as an inherently bad thing, insofar as it represents kind of like what it looks like when humans engage socially with the earth. Uh, but the danger lies, I think, in a certain sort of feedback loop between earth and world in which uh, we relate to the world in such a way in terms of control and ownership and mastery uh, in such a way as to, as to stifle both the world and the earth by cutting ourselves off at the knees. Uh, because that way of relating to the earth but through, through Babylon and worldliness ends up, ends up destroying the very interdependence the very things on which the very ecologies on which we depend for everything that is itself human. So I think there's a, there's a kind of place and necessity for, for wildness. The wildness can also be dangerous and terrible and, and traumatizing. And at the same time as it exposes us to the possibilities of, uh, of freedom. Uh, and there's a kind of danger inherent in the world insofar as by way of the world, we try to control things that we really can't. Uh, but there's also a potentially beneficial feedback loop, I think, between the two, in which we can find as stewards some kind of careful, responsible relationship between our world making and the Earth's wildness. What you just said kind of reminded me, and um, hopefully it's not inappropriate to relate it to a film, um, but just of uh, the tree of life, if you're familiar with that film, um, you know, the, the way of nature, the way of grace, um, and that those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're also not mutually beneficial, that there's a give and take to both. Um, and I think about that often when considering the wildness of, of the earth, and um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good or bad, um, on either front, uh, and, and, and that there's room for both, I guess, within the wildness of the earth. Yeah. 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 No, we, 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 we talked about Job in a, in a past episode. And I think that is the greatest example we have of kind of the, the wild and dangerous and good capacity that the universe has as God is touring Job around the cosmos. And he's like, you know, look at these lions and these tigers and these, uh, this ostrich, it's all beautiful. And, but it's also really scary. Yeah. Yeah. And in, as the story is told in the book of Job, God is that wildness. Uh, though for us as Latter-day Saints, the story might cash out differently. Uh, for us as Latter-day Saints, insofar as 
the wildness of reality isn't something that God himself is ultimately responsible for, that he in some sense found himself already in the midst of wildness at the beginning of time. Uh, there's a sense in which he, we are in the, we are in a position that's similar to, to God's own position as Latter-day Saints tell the story rather than God being straightforwardly associated with the wildness itself as he would be in a, in a traditional monotheism. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a participatory nature of that, right. That, that I, I love about kind of the, our Mormon understanding of God is that God is embedded in reality with us. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really life-giving. That's really powerful. And scary. And scary. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I mean, it, it shatters, it shatters the, the dream of mastery and control because it means that, that not even God is capable of, of owning and possessing the earth. Uh, in some definitive and final way. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think there's something there that we have this deep internal, like anxiety about reality that manifests itself in us needing to somehow control reality. Um, and I think that Babylon or the world attempts to hijack this, this anxiety in us to create, like, to, to, either steal our attention away or to create productivity and or help make us like consume more. Uh, what do you think is at the root of this anxiety that we have, this like cosmic existential anxiety? Well, I think at the, at the root of that cosmic existential anxiety is the cosmos itself uh, because the world uh, wants to and is going to kill us. We, <laughs> uh, we are going to uh, get old and get sick and we are going to die and the world is going to kill us and we have good reason to be afraid right of the fact that we are going to lose not only ourselves but but everything else along the way uh but at the end of the day you know religion uh, depends on discovering that that kind of fear is only going to make things worse not better yeah, I think it's it's interesting to consider that in the context of Adam and Eve, too, that, you know, the very nature of their decision required that they lose control in some way of, of what they were, you know, originally placed into, um, and that that's kind of the larger goal in and of itself was to relinquish that, that, that kind of responsibility, or, or not responsibility, perhaps, but um, just that that perceived control um, and living in that kind of confined, controlled environment that, you know, there that was the whole point was to relinquish that control um, and allow for, you know, those other things to to enter in. I just think that's interesting. Yeah. And yeah, that's nice that the Adam and Eve's leaving the Garden of Eden is something like their relinquishing that fantasy of control. It involves their relinquishing uh, that fantasy that they wouldn't have to die or lose anything or eat anything or kill anything, right? Uh, that the world wasn't going to be composed of, of webs of mutual destruction <laughs> insofar as it is also webs of mutual creation, right? As if there weren't ever going to be any price to pay. For being alive uh yeah giving up that fantasy is part of what happens when you eat the free when you eat the fruit of the knowledge of, of the tree of good and evil you discover the nature of the world in which you live and you leave that fantasy and now you have now you're in it with all the rest of us
Yeah. No. So I know <clears throat> in your writing that um, you talk about a lot about time. You talk a lot about work um, and different ways that we can arrange time, um, and which is I think crucial to this idea because I know you, you you mentioned that ultimately the Earth will kill us, right? That's the end of all things, and we're going to talk about that later on in the episode. Um, but until we get there, there's a way of holding life differently. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the sabbatical approach to life. And so I kind of want to talk about that. Um, and I think a good intro to that would be, um, this quote from letters to young Mormon, your, the, the book that you wrote, that's a Deseret book. Um, and I think I want to say it's in the chapter work, which might be the, one of the first one or two chapters you say, wanting to love is good and wanting to excel is good. The trouble comes from trying to tie them together. Pursue love and pursue excellence. Pursue them with abandon, but you will spoil the joy native to each if you spend your life wanting to be loved because you are great. Um, and so I think this talks to, speaks to that anxiety that, that we were talking about, right? That I think a lot of us, well, all of us feel that anxiety. And so we, we act out of that anxiety because we want to we wanna make our mark on the world. We want to we work and like attain some kind of greatness or whatever. But, but you're, you're, what you're saying here is we need to, we need to detach love from our work. Can you unpack this a little bit? Yeah, I can give that a shot. <laughs> there are two different ways to use religion, we might say. There's a way of using religion to get what I want and to secure my control and to bolster my fantasy of being able to win at the end of the day, right? Uh, I can use God's law as a way of trying to secure particular sorts of blessings for myself and to coerce God into doing what I want him to do so that the story will go the way that I want it to go. Uh, and when I think about God's law in that way, then I'm constantly thinking about my own work and my own potential achievements uh, as levers of power that I can use for my own success and my own, uh, my own control, my own mastery. That's not a great version of, of religion, <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> at the end of the day, though it is a pretty common one uh, and maybe a place that we have to at least start. But another version of religion, a deeper, truer version of religion, I think, is the version of religion in which I discovered that the law is a mechanism for teaching me how to sacrifice my own goals and desires. The law is a mechanism here for interrupting my quest for power and control and mastery. The point of the gospel being to learn how to surrender my will to God, rather than the gospel being a tool for securing my will by way of God. Uh, and that's a very different project with very different stakes that is both much more realistic and viable uh, and in some ways much more difficult. And scarier. And way scarier. I mean, <laughs> just thinking of, again, about that relinquishing of, of kind of control and, and allowing those things to become a little bit more separate than we anticipated or, or than we're used to, I guess. Yeah, so I think we normally we try to couple our work together with 
the achievement of a kind of love, as if I could, by way of my works, secure and control God's love uh, and, and make it be the thing, the kind of thing that I wanted it to be available on demand because I had, I had hit certain marks and deserved that kind of love in a certain sort of way. But that, of course, both undermines my doing the work well because I'm always just worried about the outcome, even at the same time as it ruins love because love involves my trusting the other person to love me without my being able to control whether or not they do. And if I think about the gospel as a series of levers for controlling God's feelings about me, then uh, I've ruined the whole possibility of a relationship with him before I've even started. And it's, it's, I've never thought about, um, you know, our relationship with God as being one of, of extreme vulnerability in the same, in a similar way that it is to other individuals. And, um, and, and that kind of explains maybe some of the anxieties that we have to love God in return too. Yeah. Our lo- yeah. Sorry, Adam, go. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that our loving of God is us relinqu- relinquishing control of God and letting God be what God is. Yeah. I'm going, if I love God, that means I'm going to have to, to stake my love on something other than my hope that he's going to give me exactly what I wanted. Uh, I'm going to just have to love him for what he is, even if he isn't what I wanted him to be, which is a funny thing to say about God, but also maybe a really true thing to say about God is that, you know, you maybe know you're getting it close to God and, and closer and closer to God when it becomes more and more obvious to you that he isn't and isn't, never is going to be what you wanted him to be. <laughs> that that also reminds me i think there's another quote in um letters to a young mormon about faith um and that faith is not like magic but but more like love um in the sense that you know you're not just loving something because it's good but you also kind of take on all of the flaws and things that come with it too that that really does apply I mean, faith is kind of like our love for God, right? The way that we show him our love. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that just that just kind of sparked that reminder for me, too, that it's, it's also about the flaws and <laughs> the things that may not be perfect about, um, you know, these situations or these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think we, we've talked to how love can, as we love things, we surrender control over them. And as we are loved, we are, have other people's control surrendered over us. I don't know. I didn't explain that well, but, um, I think then what we have yet to, what we need to talk about is what is the purpose of, of the work? How do we live sabbatically now that we've been made free by the law, by law and love, um, how can we, what is that, what does that look like in, in our living? And I know in, um, letters to young Mormon, you talk about how the cre- creation, God's act of creation is a model for us and how we can live sabbatically. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah. So the temptation is to think that if I give up the project of ownership and mastery and control that I've simply given up period as if there were no other choice. 
right? As if the only other the only other path you could pursue would be sitting around on your hands and doing nothing in particular. Uh, but I think the the gospel is the claim that there is a viable alternate path to the one of mastery and control, and it looks like stewardship. It looks like consecration. Once I no longer treat the world as something meant to be at my disposal, then I can take up the project of serving the world, uh, of looking not just simply to have my needs met, but looking continually to see what it is that the world needs from me, insofar as I fulfill my God-given duty to, to care for it and look after it and dress it and keep it. Um, and this, I think, is key. Uh, this is key to the way the role that the Sabbath day is meant to play in our spiritual practices, where the Sabbath day is a regular, regularly scheduled interruption of my continual pursuit of mastery and control <laughs> to, to remind me that there's something else, that there's something more that I can put that kind of work down and find a rest and caring for things instead of continually frantically attempting simply to meet my own needs, right? I can, I can put down my burden and take up that yoke of stewardship that I then share with Jesus and, and find great relief in sharing it. Any thoughts, Abby? Just, just chewing. <laughs> Trying to accept that for myself, I guess. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like there's not an opportunity for rest either. And, and in some ways, like the Sabbath day, like you said, provides that, that needed interruption. But I wonder if there's also ways that we can kind of instill that, that same attitude throughout the week without, you know, um, a, a solid reminder like the Sabbath day, or if, if there are ways that perhaps introduce that without it being one, you know, imposed or, um, that, that that's pre-existing, I guess. Yeah, I think if we if we put this in the terms we we were using earlier, um, what the Sabbath interrupts, uh, what the Sabbath uncouples, is the need for my to, the need for me to do the work of love from my hunger to secure a certain outcome as the result of that love. Right, for my to control the consequences of the work, for my to secure for myself the fruit of the of the labors. So what happens on the Sabbath is that normal connection between work and fruit, between work and achievement, gets interrupted. Gets so those two things get uncoupled, and I can learn how in Christ, in the laboratory of the Sabbath, to go about all my work in a way that is conducted as stewardship for the done for the good of the things that I'm working for rather than simply for the good of myself in terms of the outcome of the labor and to find a way then to as you as you said to carry that out into all the rest of the work that I do over the course of the week we we could certainly use more just plain rest right in terms of <laughs> good night sleeps and uh, naps uh, etc but also I think it's true that, you know, the kind of rest and peace that Jesus promises is not the kind of rest and peace that we might expect. 
right? Not as, I'm not going to give you Jesus as, as the world gives this peace and rest unto you. It's going to, it's going to take a different kind of form. It's going to have a different sort of inflection. It's going to be rest from a very specific self-imposed burden that when we turn ourselves to stewardship can be, can be put down. Yeah, no, I really like that. Cause I, uh, you know, if I think of, you know, the demands of, of the world, right. I think I need to be doing, I need to go to the gym so that I can look swole so I can be just <laughs> jacked. Right. So that I can attract a mate or whatever, so that I can like look like a superhero. Um, but I think a more sabbatical way of doing that, the kind of rest that I can find is like, no, I want to exercise because I enjoy exercise and because I, I am in this body and I love being able to move my body around and be able to, you know, be strong or, or not strong. Full disclosure, I haven't been in the gym in like two years, um, but just as an example. Um, but that, you know, I think this can apply to washing dishes or making food because in Letters to Young Mormon, you, the, your example is you give us a recipe for breaking, baking bread. And going through the process and really like sitting with the process of making bread and just being present to the entire experience rather than wishing that you were somewhere else doing something else and you just have to bake bread because you have to, right? And I think that that sabbatical way can transform the way that we do everything in our life so that we can derive some kind of spiritual fulfillment from every aspect of our of our of our existence. I mean, granted that's a, that's a high bar and it's something that we need to practice, which is why I think, you know, the Sabbath comes, we get, we get a chance to practice once a week. Right. But I think over a lifetime, um, we can learn how to derive spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment from the mundane aspects of our existence. Yeah, that's very well said. What happens when my work becomes itself a form of sabbatical work, a sabbatical practice? is that uh, all that work becomes an end in itself rather than being a means to some other end. Uh, those things become worth doing for their own sake. They become worth doing just for the love of them. And this is also a nice way to frame the difference between the, uh, the steward between stewardship and empire between the earth and the world is that when I treat things as ends in themselves, then I care for them for themselves rather than simply caring for them as a way of caring about myself uh, rather than just using people and things as means to some other end that is just more about me. So clipping that, clipping that link, right. Uncoupling the, the work itself from the ends going to be achieved by that work is, is at the heart of practicing both stewardship and living in this sabbatical way. Yeah, I think that narrative is so present in, uh, like, in conversations or um, you know, areas where we don't practice stewardship. That it's constantly about productivity. Like, how does the land produce for us and meet my needs? Or, um, you know, where does it ultimately? lead us or what does it ultimately give us instead of thinking about the earth as like a separate entity, like you said, that's not just a means to an end. It is an end in and of itself. Um, and maybe kind of reframing or providing a new perspective or reconsidering um, the perspective with which we look at the earth, as opposed to a unit of, um, you know, 
productivity or or something that produces something for us. Uh, it's about considering it in a sabbatical state, even though you know at granular levels it is maybe producing or or, or in a state of productivity just through growth. Um, but also that that it doesn't need to be productive, that it can be standalone. It can be in that sabbatical state. Yeah. And that, of course, is built into the fabric and letter of the law of Moses itself, that the earth itself is supposed to get a sabbatical. Right. Uh, uh, every, every seven years, the earth is supposed to get a sabbatical. Is that, I forget how the numerology cashes out exactly but it's built in there right that the earth itself is supposed to rest and this is a, a divine commandment that the people relate to the earth in this particular way that's very interesting yeah. oh sorry abby well i was just going to say and even in like farming we see this that you can't just continually um produce crops on the same uh plot but that like the land literally has to rest um in order for it to be uh, fruitful again, you know, and, and continue to produce. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I was going to say that, that it's interesting to see in environmental, like environmental circles, like how, how are we framing the need to take care of the earth? And I think that the primary framing is always, it's very anthropocentric. It's very, we need to take care of the earth or else, or else we're all going to die, which is a very necessary conversation to have. Right. Um, but I wonder if, if framing it in that is in it in some way self-defeating because our egos want, you know, need that, that, that sense of control. Right. But if we were to maybe utilize in some of our messaging, a reframing of, we need to care for the earth for the sake of caring for the earth, that there's something in the, in the the reciprocal relationship with even tending to the earth that will remake us somehow. Um, if that would not lend itself to better results in the future. Yeah. Framing about the necessity of caring for the earth in terms of our self-interest, I think works as a bridge at best to another way of thinking. Uh, and if it doesn't function as a bridge to getting someplace else in terms of how we relate to the earth, not just in terms of self-interest, then it's not gonna, it's not gonna ever actually uh, address the root problems that have put us in the position we're in in the first place. Hey all, thanks for joining us around the fireside to talk about things big and small. An important part of Bristlecone Firesides is putting our faith and spirituality in contact with the earth that unites us. So we'd love to keep in touch with you in the future, whether it's to share a simple call to action, send an occasional exclusive behind the scenes update, or ask you for your input on the future direction of Bristlecone Firesides. To stay in the loop, text us the phrase Fireside Utah to 52886. We won't fill up your messages, but when we do send you something, we promise it's going to be good. That's F-I-R-E-S-I-D-E, Utah, to 52886. I think this is a good a good chance for us to kind of uh, switch gears into talking about um, your book, the A Brief Theological introdu- Introduction to Mormon. Because um, in it, you talk about the ending of the world that in some sense, Christianity is an apocalyptic faith and what 
you know, what a time to talk about an apocalyptic faith when we're literally facing a climate crisis that threatens our very, you know, habitability on the earth. So in, in your book um, that is published through the Maxwell Institute, which I might add is hauntingly mystical, um, you explore how to live faithfully through the end of the world. And this is really apropos in the face of in climate change and the Anthropocene. Um, and you write essentially that preemptively sacrificing all things is the Christian response to the passing of all things. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I took up the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon. Right. <laughs> it's hard to, it's just hard to describe. It is. It's very difficult. The, the book in the Book of Mormon before the Book of Ether called Mormon. Yes. Uh, I took up that book as a kind of case study in apocalyptic discipleship, where I asked myself, what does it look like as a Christian to not just live in anticipation of the end of the world, which is kind of standard operating procedure for a Christian? Uh, but to actually live through the end of the world, as Mormon himself does, as his world collapses around him, as he loses everything, as society collapses, as everything he and everyone he has ever loved is taken from him uh, in the most horrific ways imaginable. Uh, what's that like? <laughs> As a Christian disciple, what does a Christian response to that kind of ongoing and large-scale loss look like? And so that's what I that's what I went in looking for. What what does Mormon look like? What does he do? What's what's different about him? And in very broad strokes, uh, my thesis was that a Christian response to the loss of all things, which in one way or another we will all suffer. Uh, looks like willingly sacrificing all things. And that, of course, as we're told in the lectures on faith, is the bar for any genuine religious practice. Any religion that doesn't require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto salvation. And so I, I saw that then as, uh, as the very shape that a Christian response to the loss of all things takes. Uh, we surrender in advance of the loss of those things, our claim to them, and then position ourselves not as owners, but as stewards. Yeah, I, when I was reading this, I noticed that there's, there's something uh, that living sabbatically and sacrificing all things feel deeply related to each other, that they're almost like two sides of the same coin. Um, do you have any, do you want to, can you unpack that a little bit for us, how those things are related? Yeah, if the key to living sabbatically is to treat things as ends in themselves rather than only as means to some other later end, then that's what it means to sacrifice all things, to treat all things here as ends in themselves worthy of my attention and sacrificing my claim to any particular outcome as a result of my love and care for them. Uh, that's what I'm sacrificing. What I, what I have to sacrifice is that continual temptation to identify and possess and own and control, uh, especially in light of the fact that the world is passing away regardless of how much I want to own or control or possess or identify with it. It's not a winning strategy. It's not going to work. Uh, and according to our theology, not even God can do that. And it seems like a good resolution 
or or maybe reminder for this is is the idea of the law of consecration, right? That mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever we're doing right now, whether the earth is passing away or not, is ultimately not ours anyway. Um, and and that whatever we do kind of produce or um, you know, the work that we do is God's anyway. And it's, it's something to share. It's something to, um, you know, practice with stewardship. So I think, I think that's kind of another perhaps related idea is just that, that reminder of the law of consecration to, you know, kind of as the precursor perhaps to that ultimate sacrifice or, or, you know, the ultimate, ultimate expiry of the world. Consecration is exactly the right word, right? When I live as a steward, I live the law of consecration. I've given up my claim to my own property. I've admitted the thing that the Elder Maxwell uh, tries to pound home for us, that the only thing that is actually ours to give is our own will. And everything else is borrowed at best. Everything else is given for us to, to care for as stewards at best. And what has to be sacrificed then though is the one thing that actually is mine that's the one that's the one thing that's actually mine and the one thing that i can actually give back to god is uh, i can surrender my own will and surrendering my own will is the sacrifice that's necessary and that's how i practice consecration Uh, that's how i make things sacred which is what it means to consecrate something to to frame it as sacred, to relate to it as sacred, which is to say as not mine, as God's, as something that I'm responsible for and to, uh, but not something that, uh, that I can simply consume and dispose of. Yeah, there's a, so I think that whole idea of sacrificing all things, you know, it cuts to our core. <laughs> Uh, cause I think, I think we're used to thinking of, oh, sacrificing all things or the law of consecration as, as it relates to temporal things, right? Like, oh, my car, I can, you know, let people borrow my car or whatever, or my money or all the money in my bank account there are 10% of it can go to the church. But I don't think we're used to thinking of it as in the story of my life, right? Like I have a story about how I, how I think my life ought to play out. Right. Or if we're talking about climate change. I have an idea in my head of how I would like to resolve the problem of climate change. And I think what's really difficult is sacrificing my my story of those things and living into what the present reality actually is, because ultimately that will lead me somewhere different (laughs) than what I want to. I mean, there might be some congruence there, but there, there might not be. And I think that that sacrificing of non-temporal things, but sacrificing of story and ego is way harder. <laughs> yeah. Mormon's Mormon's a good example of this. Mormon manages to sacrifice everything. He manages in the face of the loss of all things to consecrate all things. And though that is his only chance for making things better to perform this act of consecration, he still can't control the outcome and things still end catastrophically. Uh, we need to do what we need to do, what God requires and the world itself demands in terms of our responsibility to it. But we shouldn't kid ourselves about being able to control the outcome 
uh, or tell ourselves that it's only worth doing if we can. That's not the case. The only path here to a possibly good outcome is one in which we adopt a posture of consecration and stewardship. And that's true whether or not things turn out the way that we'd like or not. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the story of Abraham too um, and, and the sacrifice that God asks him to perform of his son after obviously waiting um, for most of his life to, to have posterity, right? Um, and that he doesn't, he doesn't sacrifice Isaac because he knows what is to come, that the Lord will ultimately stop him from actually making that sacrifice, but rather does it willingly. Um, and so part of me wonders, and I, I just keep thinking too of, of Kierkegaard's analysis of, of Abraham um, and this kind of reiteration of the story of Abraham um, and his sacrifice kind of getting at this point that do we really know what sacrifice is? Uh, and, and are we really aware of, you know, first of all, Abraham's ability to kind of carry this out or what was going through his mind, but on a more contemporary level, do we understand? I'm, I'm really excited about this book. Um, uh, this new book of yours, do we really understand from a contemporary perspective what sacrifice is? Um, because to me, it it doesn't really seem like we do and, and that we're willing to actually sacrifice the things that would be required of us. Like you said, whether or not those things will ultimately produce a, a positive outcome, you know, is that the point? And then you know, even if it, even if it won't yield a beneficial reward that, you know, climate change is resolved, are we still willing to carry it out? Because I think that's a lot of the narrative around climate change too, is, well, it's too little too late, or it's too far gone. Um, or, you know, another thing I recently heard was it's okay if you use a straw because there's oil in the ocean, you know, that's not, that's going to be a drop in the bucket kind of situation. But is that really the point of us caring about these things, about being a steward? Um, isn't the issue larger than just caring about it because we can do something about it? And, and I think that's, I, I love this idea of, um, you know, that's not, the the larger point the point is not to be um arriving at the ends but rather uh, you know it, I, I don't know you know doing it because that's what it's about as opposed to what it will ultimately yield mormon as kierkegaard's knight of faith i think <laughs> is, is a pretty is a pretty apt description uh, of what happens with Mormon. And I think you're absolutely right to bring this just back around again to the language of means and ends. The only way to get to the end that we're looking for is to treat everything as ends in themselves. Uh, and that work of stewardship has to be worth doing for its own sake. It has to be worth doing as an end in itself, regardless of whether I get the outcome that I'm hoping for. Though it's also true that the only way to get to the outcome that I'm hoping for is to treat things as ends in themselves, <laughs> which is part of the irony uh, of the story, of course. Uh, but Mormon's a great Mormon's a great example of Kierkegaard's night of faith, uh, continually, moment by moment, sacrificing his claim to all things in a gesture of 
of love and service for them and to them. I think the, the other half of this is we're sacrificing all things because ultimately the world's going to take them from us, right? And so I think between, you know, mass extinctions, oceans on fire, smoke-filled atmospheres and floodings in diverse, diverse places, it's very obvious that the world is passing away. Um, and according to your book, Mormon's secret sauce is his quickness to observe and his soberness of mood. Can you elaborate on these two things? These are the two characteristics that really stood out to me uh, when I looked at Mormon's own response as he articulates it for us in the course of the little book of Mormon and the book of Mormon uh, is that he is number one, really quick to observe. He tells us, uh, he tells us this in the opening verses uh, of his own book. And he repeats twice in just those opening verses of the first chapter the fact that he was selected to care for the records because he was sober of mind, even as a child. Uh, and then when he tries uh, in the few verses after this to explain why he was visited personally by Jesus so early in his life, the only explanation he can give is because of his soberness of mind. Uh, and I take soberness of mind here to mean something like from the get-go, from, from the very earliest age for Mormon, he harbored no illusions about the fact that the world was going to pass away, uh, that he was tuned into the world's passing, and he wasn't afraid to see it, to look it square in the eye, to, to recognize the passing away of the world for what it was, both on a very small scale and in the kind of horrific ways that it eventually plays out for his whole civilization in the Book of Mormon. But that these two things together, right, his, his, his quickness to observe and then his kind of uh, sober, melancholy mood left him attuned then to exactly the kinds of things the world was going to need from him rather than making his experience of the world about him. Most of the time, we are not, we're not willing to observe hardly anything. <laughs> Let alone being being quick to observe. Uh, Well, you know, let me speak for myself, I guess. (laughs) Most of the time I I walk and drive and sit in in a fog of uh, of self-concern and anxiety and distraction and hardly observe anything around me, uh, partly as a gesture of self-defense and partly just as product of kind of a self-centered laziness. Because the moment you start looking, the moment you start paying attention to the world around you, you'll see the way that it is filled with needs. You'll see the way that it is constantly claiming you as an agent responsible to it. The way that it constantly calls out to us for our care and stewardship and service. And that seems like it's going to be a heavy burden to bear. And it is a sort of yoke, but it's nowhere near as heavy as the burden of carrying around the fantasy that there's some other choice, that there's some other kind of life, that there's some escape hatch and uh, back into the Garden of Eden where we could make things be the way that we want rather than continually serving things as they are for whatever needs they have. 
I think that kind of gets at um, one of Madison's questions that he he also I know that he also has is um, about climate get, grief um, this this idea of climate grief and that you know obviously thinking about these things is quite heavy so there's a balance where you know on the one hand um, being self consumed is no way to live but then how do you not um, you know, overburdening yourself with, with climate grief either. I mean, I think Mormon is a good example that, um, you know, the world is ending and somehow he still has the ability to go on and, and to act in faith. Um, but, you know, what do you make of, of our kind of current dilemma of, of that climate grief or that, that climate despair even? Yeah. Mormon is able to move forward with a kind of faith. So even by his own description, it's a funny kind of faith. He tells us, I think, with what is a really striking formulation, he tells us at one point that he loved and cared for his fellow Nephites without faith that they were going to change. With He, he literally says he, uh, he carried onward without hope that things were going to get any better uncoupling his care for them from his desire from a certain sort of outcome, right? Caring for them as an end in itself, even though he had no hope that it would, it would, that things were going to get any better in the way that he would naturally hope for. I'm reminded of, of the way that it's, it's built in at the ground level into our baptismal covenant, as Alma explains it to mourn with those that mourn. And I think that there's, there's a certain sort of spiritual work necessary in terms of transfiguring the nature of our mourning, right? That this may be a, uh, in lots of ways, the central transformative redemptive effect of the gospel is that it doesn't relieve us of the obligation to mourn, even to mourn with other people who are mourning, but it opens the possibility of that mourning being transfigured into something redemptive rather than something simply crushing and dramatic. And that I think is the perpetual hope held out by Jesus. He shows us uh, even more than Mormon, Jesus shows us what it looks like to tread a path straight to the cross and the loss of all things, and the suffering of all things, and the sacrifice of all things. And he shows us how even in the midst of all of that loss, and all of the mourning appropriate to it, that it's possible for, for that loss and mourning to still be transfigured, for it to be redeemed in a way that, that's powerful and, and liberating, and also potentially really helpful for other people. Yeah, no, I... Uh... Because I think there, there's a there's a deeper or more subtle way of understanding the passing away of the world that, that you that you talk about um, that the world at every moment is passing away and is being recreated. And in your book, you you go to length you, at length you talk about the recreation of the world, right? That even as I breathe in and exhale, my body is dying and being remade in you know in the in the the momentary passing of time, right? Right now it's fall all the trees are sacrificing themselves 
sacrificing all things to flow into the, the time of winter, at which the point they will be remade in the spring, right? And that there's kind of this, uh, this entropic wave of the present moment that we're living in of, of kind of this, this dazzling dance of, of death and life and recreation and resurrection is, is our word for that. Um, and so I, I, and that, that's kind of the mystery at the heart of reality that Jesus leads us to is that this cycle can be trusted. Um, and can you talk a little bit about this, this secondary passing of the world? Yeah, we have the world passing away both on a kind of dramatic global scale in terms of problems like climate change. Uh, but we also have just very ordinary, very local, very familiar ways in which the world is continually passing away, in which the world is continually ending. This is maybe what interested me most about Mormon, not just because it seemed to me that the world itself is entering a very dangerous and critical phase in its own history, but that regardless, you and I, each of us all day long, every day, suffer the loss of all things. who I was yesterday is not who I am today. And that guy's never coming back. And who I was 10 years ago is not who I am today. And that guy 10 years ago is never coming back. And who my children were 15 years ago, it's never coming back. Even if in some sense we're together forever as an eternal family, I will never hold my five-year-old son on my lap again for all of eternity and read him a book. That will never, ever happen again. Uh, and to suffer the continual loss of all these things, of all these, of some, of at least some version of the people that we had loved or even some version of ourselves to have that all continually passing away. That's not something, for instance, that the gospel ever promises to solve. God never promises that we'll reach a certain point at which everything will freeze in place uh, to this kind of static, frozen perfection. He promises that it can go on forever. Eternal progression means something like we will, for all time and all eternity, continue to suffer the loss <laughs> of all things as new worlds rise into existence and old worlds continue to pass away, both on macro and micro scales. And the gospel is a name for how to respond to that. It's a name for how God himself responds to all this continual loss, to his own continual exposure, to all these wild things that he has to let go their own ways and do their own things, even as he does what he can to, to care for them and direct them and shepherd them. No, I think that's, that's really beautiful, honestly. Um, but also, again, I mean, it goes back to that idea of just reframing um, and, and kind of... Um, changing your perspective perhaps on, on what's possible um, and, and not being fixated on this idea of the past, but that, you know, moving forward is also that death is part of moving forward um, and that we need to kind of maybe reframe death or, or passing um, as not always something that's inherently bad in the same way that we do with those other things that we've talked about throughout the entire episode, you know, nothing, nothing is truly good or bad in this sense, I guess. It's the price of creation. 
we as Latter-day Saints don't believe in creation out of nothing, which means everything is created out of something, which means that whatever thing it used to be isn't what it's going to be now. Uh, and whatever thing comes next after that won't be the thing that came before. Great. It's, uh, there's a, a beauty almost in the tragedy of that, right? That like, you know, even if I think about my own life that I'll never be that teenager again, or I'll, I will never get to be the five-year-old that was read books by my, by my dad again. Like there's a tragedy. There's a, you know, my heart breaks at that. Like it almost like moves me to, to tears. Um, and, uh, but yet this is the reality that we have. And the promise is that what the promise what, that we have is if we can, nice. <laughs> Sorry. That's me. Uh, the, the promise, uh, that we have is that if we can hold those, hold life with an open hand rather than a closed fist, that we will continually be brought to a better place. Um, and that reality will continually bring us there. Um, and so to, I, you know, I think the work of sacrifice is also the work of forgiveness and that forgiving reality for being imperfect and taking everything from us and in the eternal midst of becoming feels like a response born from like, it's, it feels like a wild kind of response to forgive reality for being the way that it is. Um, in this way, we, we release the world from our expectations and simply allow it to be what it is. And to me, this is a kind of a beautiful and mystical and wild response to the passing of the world. So in conclusion, can you expand on why forgiveness as a wild kind of response is finally liberating and freeing? This at the very end for me is, is how my reading of, of Mormon's own life culminates. That at the end of the day, what it looks like to sacrifice all things, to sacrifice my claim to all things, to control them or own them or master them and make them be what I want. Uh, what that looks like on the ground in real time is the work of continually forgiving the world. Continually forgiving the world for not being quite what I wanted. You know, so continually forgiving the world in the sense of my practicing gratitude from second to second for what that thing is, which is not the thing that I wanted. But for what that thing is, right, seeing what good it is, though it may not have been the good that I wanted or needed, continually forgiving the world for that, but also continually forgiving the world for what it needs from me, continually forgiving the world for the fact that it has claim on me as its steward, even if I can't claim it as something that I could own or master or control. Stepping into rather than running from that responsibility that looks like forgiving and that's what that's what it looks like i think to be a christian and that's what it looks like to transfigure our mourning into something productive and creative and, and redemptive um, that's the door i think that jesus opens are there any practices you can recommend to us to help us on that journey towards forgiveness as a lifestyle i'm going to recommend observing the sabbath day Seriously, for real, observing the Sabbath day, I'm going to recommend taking up prayer as a serious endeavor, as the focal point, maybe, of everything that you do over the course of a single day. Not something to be squeezed in here or there, but as the very fulcrum upon which all the rest of your actions turn. 
and I'm going to recommend that uh, people allow themselves to be confronted dramatically, uh, open themselves up very vulnerably to the wildness of our sacred texts. Uh, see what happens when we read those things, not just with an eye to what we want them to say, but with an ear to, to hear what they what they want to tell us. This is pretty revolutionary stuff, but I'm 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 willing to put a stake in the ground and say that if anything has open to me the possibility of living a Christian life. It's been taking those three things seriously. Thank you for joining us in the spiritual wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors, and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and high mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth.